Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. In today's episode, we discuss the role of brokers, FX trading, GPS capital markets, and much more with David Pierce from GPS Capital Markets. We also have a bonus at the end of the episode where we interview Alex Youngman, Vice President of Sales and Trading at GPS Capital Markets, but on the other side of the ocean, in the UK, and offering us a UK and European perspective. David Pierce has over three decades of experience in all aspects of foreign exchange, international banking and trade finance. His extensive experience in structuring hedging and strategies, multi-tier transactional exposures, utilizing derivative products makes his advisory services highly demanded by multinational corporations. David has appeared as an expert on CNBC and in many business publications such as the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. In the episode of today, expect to learn what is the role of brokers in FX trading, what is stock brokerage versus FX brokerage, how has the inflation and interest rates rise impacted FX derivatives, how does GPS capital market ensure transparency and security in its transactions, how AI in FX trading is impacting the brokerage world, and as you can imagine, much, much more. David is a reference in the field and we are very grateful for having him on the show. He appears regularly on CNBC to discuss the financial market and it's an honor to have him on the podcast. We really hope you will enjoy the episode. If that is the case and when you're thinking about how you found our podcast, chances are that it was through word of mouth, social media, or a recommendation from your favorite podcast platform. And this is our only request to you. We are able to attract such amazing guests like David only thanks to you and the fact that you follow the show, reshare, or leave us a review on the different podcast platform. So if you enjoyed the episode, maybe learn a thing or two, please consider doing one of the above. On another note, the conversation we had with Dave and Alex was really insightful, and we discussed about ways we could collaborate further together. If you'd like to get in touch with Dave or Alex, we have worked together on a link where you can book a demo from GPS Capital Markets and explore how their team can actually help you. Head to the link in the description or to gpsfx.com slash book dash a dash demo. On another other note, this episode is brought to you by Automation Boutique. Automation Boutique is an hourly treasury, finance, and risk management with tailored automation solutions. They believe treasury and finance can lead your organization strategically, drive innovation, and provide key insights. We partnered with Automation Boutique as we really like their approach to innovation and how they help the treasury industry. For this partnership, they came up with an automation scan that can help you see if there are automation opportunities in your internal processes. It is totally free, non-intrusive, and only takes about 10 minutes. If you want to have a look, head to the link in the description or to automationboutique.com slash corporate treasury 101. And with all that being said, please welcome David Pierce. Hey, Dave. 
Thank you so much for joining us on the show. One topic that we didn't touch upon yet on the Corporate Trade 101 podcast is brokerage. What is a broker? So that's actually my first question to you. Can you walk us through what is a broker, please? Well, I think just basically when you talk about a brokerage is a more specialty company. And that could be a, you know, you've heard of stock brokerages where they, that's what they do is they specialize in stock. We're a foreign exchange brokerage. Foreign exchange brokerages are typically not, you know, banks and not offer other financial institutions. It's mainly dealing with specific foreign exchange. And the reason the brokerages came about is because, as you know, foreign exchange is a very complicated industry. There's a lot that goes into it. And if somebody is just dabbling in it, if somebody is just doing this as a sideline, they're not going to be nearly as expert as somebody who does this full time. And so brokerages have been around for a long time. I started at my first brokerage 35-ish years ago. So I've worked at brokerages. I've worked with at big banks and back at working in the brokerage world again. And I love it. It is, it, it gives us a lot more flexibility and there's a lot more things that we can do for clients to help them in their journey and trying to manage their currency risk. So that's basically what a brokerage is. A lot of the reasons that companies need them is for the specific expertise that exists at a brokerage that's specialized, that they may not be able to find at their traditional financial institution. So that's really what a brokerage is and why the brokerages exist in the world. You made the distinction between stock brokerage and FX brokerage, so that's super interesting. When you talk about FX brokerage, what are we looking at exactly? Is it only swaps and like spots just to trade currencies? Or will you also offer derivatives like forwards, futures, and all this beautiful stuff that you can also use to manage your FX risk, right? That really depends a lot on the brokerage that you're working. There are some brokerages that basically just do retail transactions. You've seen the kiosks at the airport where you exchange some cash because you're going on vacation. Those are considered brokerages, but those are retail. And what I'm talking about and what I deal with is corporate brokerages, brokerages that deal specifically with corporations and companies and help companies move their money around the world. There's a few key points. We Yes, we do spot foreign exchange. We exchange funds. We can move funds around the world. We're really good at moving moving money, wire transfers, direct debits, direct credits, um, low-value payments, things like that. Then we also get into simple hedging like forward contracts. And then we also get into more exotic hedging with different complex derivatives like options and structured options and, and so forth. Then there's also probably another real big distinction in the brokerage world too that we need to make. There are brokerages that exist for people to do what I would call speculative trading, which means they don't have any exposure in the marketplace and they're trying to make money on foreign exchange. And so they go out and they and they buy, you know, 10 million euros because they think that the euro is going to to get stronger. And then they hold on to it and they try to sell it and hopefully they don't lose all their money. And And that's not what we do. We are strictly for people that actually have exposure due to their underlying business. So, for instance, you, you know, you're a company in France, you make your product in, in euros and you sell it in U.S. dollars. And by the time you get paid in U.S. dollars, the exchange rate is going to be different. And so what we do is we try to help companies lock that rate in 
So it's just like doing business domestically. So they don't have that risk. If that does that distinction make sense? Hundred percent. And you actually anticipated one of my next questions, which was, "Oh, why do companies <laughs> need them?" But that's perfect. That's perfect. I love it, Dave. Awesome. And so I also like the distinction between retail and corporate, and that's something that was a bit blurry for me. So when you say retail, it's just basically helping individuals to change their currency of their cash, basically. Yeah. Well, corporate like the, the kiosk at the airport, that would be you know a retail type of a uh, brokerage. But I also put the kind of brokerages where like you or I could go and just deposit $10,000 and speculate on that money. I would call that a retail brokerage as well because they're dealing by and large in the most part with individuals, not with companies, which is a big difference. And so looking at uh, specifically corporate treasury, how do brokers, brokerage, facilitate FX trading or FX hedging for those corporate treasury departments? So that's a big question. (laughs) That's a big one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, okay, give me three hours and we'll uh, we'll get through this one. So perfect. Uh, the way that we do it is it is really similar to any financial institution. We are out there, we are in the interbank market dealing in foreign exchange 24 hours a day. We've got trade desks, you know, throughout the world. We, it, in our case, you know, we've got uh, one in the UK and we've got several in the United States and uh a couple in Australia. So, you know, we have people around the globe that are that are trading for us. So as a corporation comes to us, and let's just start with a simple spot transaction. Let's say a company comes and says, says, Dave, I've got a million US dollars. I need to exchange that back into euros. Um, can you help me with that? We go out and we trade that in the spot market. And then we simply facilitate a transfer of funds back to the client. Usually that's when we're dealing with larger transactions like that, usually it's done by a wire transfer. If it is, you know, smaller, low-value payments, you know, it could go by SEPA or Faster Pay or ACH or one of the different low-value payment rails that exist around the world. And a lot of that just really depends on the volume of the transactions and the size of the individual transactions. It is more secure to send if we're dealing in, in millions of, of dollars and euros. It's more more efficient and secure to send things via wire right now because there is, once you've got a wire, you've got the wire and there's no no comeback on it. Whereas some of the lower value payment where else there's some ways that you can claw back some of that money. So it's, it's not quite as secure for the end recipient of those funds. So that's the basic transaction, a spot transaction. From a hedging transaction, this is where we really get a little more complicated. And let me break down the kind of clients we have kind of into two different categories. So the first category is what I would call a very sophisticated client. This is where they've got somebody that really knows what they're doing. They've got systems in place. They've built an infrastructure inside their company. They know exactly how much they want to hedge, when they need to hedge it. They've got a program in place and they come to us and they're coming to us only for execution. That's what they're doing. So they come to us, they get the price, we execute the deal, and then the deal's there waiting for them to use it, you know, when the time comes. And we have quite a few of those clients. The second type of client, I would say, is maybe a little less sophisticated. They they know what they want to do. They've got an idea what they want to do. They know what they want to try to accomplish. They're not sure how to get there. And so in that case, we sit down with them, and we are very, very 
much consultative in nature in how we do business. And so we'll actually sit down, go through a company's financial statements with them. We will talk to them about what their exposures look like and where it's giving them problems, how it's hip, hitting the company's financial statements, not only at the parent, but even at the subsidiary levels. So that way, what they know is, all right, we might have this foreign exchange exposure that's out there that is impacting us at our foreign subsidiary. But once we consolidate that back to the parent, we may not see all that exposure and we may not know where all of this risk is coming from. So we want to find that out as well. So that's probably the second kind of client. The third kind of client is somebody who may also have lots of exposure in lots of different countries. And this one's a little bit different because let's say that they're a company based in France and they've got 50 different subsidiaries around the world. And a lot of times those subsidiaries, they've bought them from different companies. They're using different ERP systems, different treasury systems, and they have no idea what their exposure even looks like. They don't have visibility into it. And that is the most difficult one because what as much advice as you go and give them, if they physically cannot see what their exposures are, how are you going to manage that, right? That's the hard one. And and frankly, that's we spend probably as much time with those clients as we do anybody in the industry because we, we kind of have the secret sauce. We, we've got some software and we've got some tools and we've got ways that we can go in and help companies that have these, I don't know if I, you call them hidden exposures, but they're exposures that they can't identify themselves. And we help them identify those exposures and show them, all right, you've got these exposures, here they are, and maybe they net against other exposures so that it's not a big deal to the company, or maybe they're causing you big problems. And without understanding exactly what that looks like, there's a lot of companies that are flying blind out there. And that's probably where we spend most of our effort is with companies like that. The deep dive, the the real companies that not necessarily they don't have a lack of knowledge, but it's a lack of visibility into their very own systems. Mm. So I wanted to play Davies advocate a little bit, but so <laughs> the thoughts with that. With the consulting hats, I see I see what and I'm gonna come to it. But so you help the companies look at their financial statement and really go deep diving into helping them identify their financial risk exposure and then putting the solutions in place. And then there are the companies that do not even have a system to help them identify that exposure, let alone manage it. I remember from my cash management analyst time that I typically had clients calling me to know if we could help them doing swaps or spots, or like they had a big deal coming in a few days, few weeks. That's something banks can do, right? So let's park for the moment the consulting and system and exposure identification, but obviously you do differently. But help me understand what's the difference between what a bank could do in terms of FX transactions, FX trading, and what you typically at GPS Capital Market or any broker will do in that field. Sure. When you talk about just the trading side of it, we can trade them, they can trade them. It's, there's not a ton of difference there. So I, I would say that we're very similar in that aspect. One of the things that does differentiate, and I'm located in the United States, so you know I'm talking specifically U.S. here. In the United States, the bigger banks here in the United States have had restrictions put on them because of 
some of the, I don't even know what you want to call it, but the federal government has decided that they were not giving great advice to their clients and they were making too much profit on some of these deals because they were putting clients into things that were not necessarily the best for them. So the big banks are not, they can either be an execution partner or they can be an advisor. And brokerages such as GPS Capital Markets, we are able to do both sides of those transactions. And so we can look at a client and usually what we do when we put together a suggestion for our client, we'll put together four or five different scenarios and we'll compare them side by side with our clients and say, look, here's four or five different scenarios. And we think some of them work better. Some of them work worse, but let's go through and look at your case and decide which one would be the best for you. And whereas if you are a big bank and all you can do is execution, the client needs to come up with that analysis. They have to go through all that work. Then they can go and they can execute with their bank just as well as they could execute with us. So I don't think that that is the actual execution of the deals is not that big of a deal. I mean, I think that we're faster and better and probably less expensive. But as far as actually executing the deals, the, their banks are probably going to be capable to do that. Is that the key difference that are brokers fiduciary responsibilities and therefore they need to give advice that would yeah, benefit the client? We do have fiduciary responsibility that when we are going out and making recommendations to our clients, those can be subject to evaluation. And if we are giving bad advice, then you know we have regulators. And boy, you are so lucky in Europe because regulation over there is easy. Probably nobody there thinks that. But here in the United States, you know, we've got the federal government that we have audited us and that we are beholden to. We also have 50 states. And the last two weeks, we had eight different states in here doing a two-week audit. And every single one of them wanted different things. So, you know, we have not only got to be beholden to the United States government, but all the 50 states. And then we have to deal with, you know, UK rules and EU rules and and Australia, you know, everywhere we do business in, you know, Canada, et cetera, we, we've got to comply with all of those rules. And it gets overwhelming and it becomes almost like we're a compliance company because we're trying to figure out how to be compliant everywhere in the world. And, you know, like, like for instance, I mean, a while ago, we had to completely redo our website for our company and go to a completely different platform because the platform that we are on was not GDPR compliant. Now in the United States, we don't care about that. But in, in Europe, GDPR is a big deal. So we have to be nimble and we have to really be able to make things work in different parts of the world. Super clear. So are there different types of brokerages as well? Yes, there are. And there's different types of licenses. Some brokerages can only do, let's say, spot and forward transactions, cannot do derivatives, options. Even within those brokerages, there are specific people. You have to be licensed to do options, for instance. So you actually have to go through and have an options trading license in order to cover options for your clients if you're, you're that individual. If you are not licensed, then somebody who actually has an option license or is the one that actually has to go and deal with those clients within the company. So yeah, there's different types of licensing and there's also different types of licensing within the brokerages as well for the individuals. So when you go about selecting a brokerage, then is that the main thing that you're looking at is the kind of services that you need and can those be supported by 
not just the company, but the individuals inside that company. Is there an individual in that company that you're looking at licensed to be able to carry out that transaction? Is that the main well, thing you look for or when I'm selecting directly? Those are a couple of things you've got to look for. Because if, looking for. if you can't meet my basic needs, there's no reason to even talk to that brokerage, right? So, I mean, that's a good place to start. But if you, let's say that you go to a brokerage that can meet your basic needs, they can do options, they've got people there that can trade the options, all that's well and good. Well, then you've got a whole bunch of other questions you need to ask. So, for instance, how financially sound is the brokerage? Am I going to have to place a deposit? How much credit can I get? And those are all things that are above and beyond whether or not somebody could physically do something. And I mentioned one thing there, credit too. And credit might sound, how important is that? But it's a big deal, especially if you are, let's say you're a corporation and you've got a hundred million euro revolver from your from your bank. And that's what you manage your business on is with this revolving line of credit. Well, if you go out and do foreign exchange, they reduce that line of credit. That goes against your line of credit and gives you less money to actually borrow in the marketplace. Where is if you come out to me and I put a line of credit into in for you for foreign exchange, guess what? That doesn't impact the line that you have got with your bank. It gives you additional credit and it gives you more flexibility and more ability to trade and do the things that you might need to do as a company. So finding somebody that can actually give you real credit without taking cash deposits and things like that is a big deal as well. So hit it on the head, Hassam, that you've got to make sure you've got to actually be able to do the deals. And then you've got to dig a little bit deeper, make sure you have the right brokerage that can do the deals. Quick question about that, Dave. That's super interesting. But so you will also look at that company's overall debt situation, right? We'll not just say, okay, our credit comes on top. I understand that for wallet sharing reasons and like the level of risk a bank is willing to take, they might be like, okay, we're already giving you a hundred millions, whatever, in terms of revolving credit facility, for instance, we cannot go above that to grant you an FX line as well. But are you taking that into account nonetheless? Dead yeah. situations of the client. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we look at the client. We've got big credit department, right? And that's all that they're doing is looking at the credit of clients and they look at a number of things. They look at how much they're looking at the underlying financials of the company. How well is the company doing? Are they making money? Are they losing money? How much debt do they have? Can they pay their debt back? We like to even look at FX contracts that they might have on with other brokerages as well, because we've seen some times when people have gone out and gone crazy and had way too much exposure out with too many brokerages. And then they've gotten in trouble because they've gone became speculative in the market. They're no longer just trying to cover their exposure. They're trying to make money doing this. And we really work hard to avoid doing business with people like that because we want to help corporations do their business better. This is not about speculating. And it was about speculating in the foreign currency market. They would just sell everything in the company and go to Las Vegas and start gambling, right? I mean, that's, you know, that would be just as good a business strategy. So we don't think that that's a good business strategy going to Vegas and putting it on black, right? So we want people, we're trying to help people build their core business and do it better. That's a great transition because that's exactly my next question. We've talked a lot about financial risk management and specifically FX risk in the yeah. podcast before and, and go over those concepts. From a brokerage perspective, like, so we looked at it from the corporation side, but from the broker side, is that your key objective? Is like, 
I'm sure there's brokers out there that are also helping their clients speculate or not really. Yes. Or is that a bad yeah, broker? There absolutely are. Yeah. But not us. So that's not what we do. What's the we, right we, perspective? You're asking a guy who doesn't believe in, in speculating. So my perspective is we just help corporations manage their risk and their exposure. Look, I got gray hair. I've earned it. And I've seen a lot of bad things happen in the marketplace over the years. And when I look at this, I have never seen good come out of clients speculating in the currency market. I've just, it's never turned out well for them. So I'm pretty firm in the, in the camp of we don't help our clients speculate. We help our clients reduce risk. And, and let's look at, these are two opposite sides. Because if you don't have any risk in the marketplace and you go and buy a currency, you've all of a sudden created risk for the company. Well, that's not treasury management. That's speculation. If by the nature of your business, you have risk in currency because you're doing business other in other countries, well, you have risk. If you hedge that, you cover it, you're eliminating your risk. What's that called? That's treasury management. That's cash management. That is what people are hired to do in that cash risk area of a company is to manage the risk, not create risk. So to me, it's cut and dry. And as a company philosophy, that's where we're at. We 100% want to help corporations manage their risk and not or not less, but help them with the right amount of risk. And you know what? Things happen. You know, when COVID happened, a lot of people got, especially in the retail industry, we had a lot of clients that were like in the clothing industry and stuff, and nobody went to stores and nobody bought clothes. And they had the right amount of hedges on for their historical sales but when COVID happened, all of a sudden they had way too many hedges on and helping them manage that and how we can get some of those hedges off the books so they weren't over hedged. I mean, people, things like that happen in the marketplace. And that's, you know, that's just normal course of business. That's not because we're trying to do things wrong. It just sometimes disasters happen. What's over hedged? I don't think that's something we've covered. Mm. Over hedged. That means... Let's say you're a French company and you got receivables of 10 million US dollars and you say, all right, I'm going to go out and buy foreign exchange hedges for $100 million. That's overhedged. You're buying more hedges than what you actually have underlying exposure for. And, you know, sometimes that happens where, you know, maybe you've gone and hedged 90% of your exposure in the marketplace. And then I can say 9-11 or COVID happens and all of a sudden your market drops by 50%. So now you're 40% over hedged. So you've got to reduce those hedges. You've got to sell those on. And this can happen. We Nobody likes to be over hedged if you're not speculating because it, it shows up badly on your financial statements. Okay, I'm going to get accounting geeky here for a minute. So bring me back if I get too, too deep in the weeds. But if you're doing a mark to market on your outstanding hedges and you don't have anything to offset those hedges... All of a sudden, all those gains and losses on those hedges are hitting your income statement. There's nothing to offset it. And that is really ugly on a company's financial statements because I always call it the no-win line on the financial statement, that FX gain and loss line, the one that's above the net income. Because if you've got a gain on there, if you've got stockholders, you're a publicly held company, nobody gives you credit if you've got a gain. They're like, and it's a one-time event. It was lucky. We don't give them any credit for that. What happens if you have a loss? Those guys are idiots. They don't know what they're doing. They're not managing the company right. 
okay? So if you've got a gain, you don't get anything out of it. If you've got a loss, you get you lose your job type of a thing. You want that line to be zero. Zero is the best number you could possibly have. So it that's what we're trying to do is help companies try to get to, to a net zero. And so would you say like overhedging is like the equivalent of just not being hedged at all? It's kind of like the same amount of like risk you carry? Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, it is. It's it's like not being hedged at all. It's creating risk actually out of nothing. And nobody wants to create risk when there's no risk to begin with. That's just silly. Or if I just spend like it there, lines that that right? <laughs> to just make us that. I'm very pragmatic. I just, just I, draw a line on that, right? Yeah, I'm just like, I like to just do things the right way. And there are scenarios when people put on hedges that they may not have underlying exposure, and there's the appropriate type of hedges to use for that. For instance, if you're bidding on a big project, let's say you're bidding on a project that's a half a billion euros, and you're an American company. You go out and buy an option, just a vanilla option, pay a premium for that in case you get that bid. Yeah, are you hedged? Yes, you are. Do you have an underlying exposure? Not yet, but is it worth it to spend 1% maybe to have protection in case you get that contract? Yes, that is a business decision. That's not just a, a wild speculative decision. It is a That's a, a proper business decision on putting a hedge on even though you haven't got a contract yet. So- there are cases where it's very, very appropriate to do, but most of the time it's not. Super clear. Oh, yeah, so just draw a line on that then. So main benefit to a corporate to working with a brokerage is that it's to eliminate the risk. Is that how you would summarize it? That's yeah. the main objective that a good company is going into a relationship with a brokerage? Absolutely. Yeah. We're here to help you minimize your risk. We are. Like I said, there's a couple of other types of brokerages that that is not their stated purpose. Doesn't mean that they're bad companies. They're not doing a good job. It's just you need to make sure you have the right one for what you're trying to accomplish. If you are just looking to speculate in the currency markets, don't come see me. Go see somebody else because that's what they do. And we don't do that. Dave, I really like the part where you mentioned that's basically uh, treasury, when everything goes well, that is fine. Treasury doesn't get any credits, but when stuff or whatever hits the fan, uh, the treasury gets the blame. To be a bit geeky uh, myself as well, and to name them one of my favorite movies, Batman. Treasury is the hero we need, but we don't deserve at the end of the day, right? Because yeah, exactly. That's what we do. <laughs> exactly that. So to get back in that FX risk management and exposure, we're a bit curious. So we had a question around how the brokerage plays a role in managing FX exposure. I think you mentioned it already, right? You help companies in a consulting way to identify their exposure, basically and gain visibility on it. Do you help them manage it at all? And I mean, free trade phase, such as, there are such things as natural hedge, for instance, which privacy wouldn't be too much in your benefits, let's say, because if there is a natural hedge, hedge sorry, then you don't really need a, an FX product. So do you play a role in that as well? And how do you overall come into play when it comes to managing that exposure? You know, thanks for throwing me a softball question. Um, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but we are the masters of helping clients identify those natural hedges. We actually have two completely different software tools to help clients identify those. And let me kind of explain the differences between those two. And 
and I'll give you maybe a story behind one. So if you don't mind me going off on stories, I kind of like to tell stories. So the first one is what we call our intercompany netting tool. And this is something that we see a lot of multinationals have where they've got manufacturing facilities all over the world and they sell their products to their different subsidiaries and then those subsidiaries sell them out. So they've got payables and receivables back and forth, thousands of items a month. And they really traditionally what they've done is just every entity is send out the wires and the different currencies and received wires and their different currencies. And it's just been kind of a mess. And a lot of people say, well, it's just within the company. It doesn't make that big of a difference. Well, it really does. Because if you've got two entities that both say have a $100,000 wire and they both, one's in England and one's in France, and they're on opposite sides of the market, one buys, one sells, there's a spread in the marketplace. There's a bid-ass spread. And depending on who you're dealing with and what time you do the deal, there could be a one, two, three, four percent spread in that. Whereas you could just net that within the company at zero cost with just an accounting transaction. And we recognize that. So here's an example of what we did for a client of mine. So this is company was a freight forwarding firm. So they would like, they would go and they would send um, a truck to BMW in Germany and pick up BMWs. And that truck would drive the BMWs down to the port, put those BMWs on a ship. Then the ship would sail to Miami. When the ship got to Miami, all of a sudden their U.S. entity would meet the ship in Miami, pay the customs duties, take the cars off the ship, put them on trucks or trains and deliver them to the dealers. Well, the Germans who got the contract for this this shipping, they in turn had to pay the expenses for the U.S. entity, for the customs duties, for the moving them onto the truck or the train, and then the truck and the train to the dealer, all those expenses. So they would have to pay those expenses to them. Well, this company had about 20,000 of those payments intercompany a month, and they added up to about 200 million U.S. dollars worth of trades. And at the time, they were sending wires for every one of these, 20,000 wires. And they were paying about $20 a wire. So 20,000 wires times $20, all of a sudden you're talking $400,000 a month in wire fees. Times that by 12, you know, you're talking almost $6 million. That's a lot of money. That's just in fees. And then they are exchanging about $200 million in FX, which is a lot as well. There's bid-ass spread on that. Well, we put them on the intercompany netting system, and guess what? Now they've got like 114 entities around the world. Each entity either gets one wire or they send one wire every month. So they send 114 wires. Well, times 20 bucks, 114 wires, that doesn't sound like a lot of money now, does it? And then they reduced the amount of FX that they were doing from around $200 million a month down to about $7 million. Wow. I mean, incredible, right? And the average spread, because they had companies in all kinds of crazy countries, right? Their average spread globally was over 2%. So if you, if you save somebody 2% on $193 million a month, all of a sudden that becomes real money. And guess what? We net everything together. Every entity gets one payment, one receivable, one payable, one receivable, and we facilitate that. But guess what? When we get clients like that, they're not going to go anywhere else because we take and put a lot of effort into building a system that will facilitate that. Okay, so that's one way. 
Okay. Second way, there's three ways actually. I can back up. So let me go and tell you about the second way. Second way is we talked about having these exposures out there that are kind of hidden. We've had clients with as many as 15 different ERPs in their company because they've gone out and bought and sold and mergers and acquisitions. So they end up with a lot of historic ERP systems and they don't talk to each other. So we've built an interface where we can go out and talk to the different ERP systems, gather all of their exposure data and put it in one spot. And then they can say, all right, we can now see where all of your expo- what your net exposure as a company is. And then we can see what your exposure is by entity. And then we can also even drill down in and we can see, all right, which GL line items have exposure. So they can track and see, oh, you know what? We've got a whole bunch of cash sitting over there. We may want to bring that back because it's hitting us from an exposure standpoint and we could use the cash over here. We didn't even know we had that. So the visibility is a big deal on that one. And then we give them a global net number, what their total exposure is. And they say, all right, you can hedge this out. And we usually hedge it out a month at a time. And we can continue to to move these hedges in, in and out. But we hedge the global total. So if you've got, you've got one entity that is long 50 million euros, another entity that is short 40 million euros, we hedge 10 million euros, but we send out contracts for 90 million euros to this, these companies. So each subsidiary has a hedge. Now, why is that important? Well, if you've got an entity in France and an entity in the United States, they're taxed separately and they've got to show gains and losses on their local financials before consolidation. And so it's really important for them if they've got exposures to have a hedge to offset that locally. And that really helps companies manage that exposure not on a local basis, but as a corporate basis as well, because we are netting everything at the corporate. So we reduce the amount of hedges we do, but we also give the advantage to each subsidiary to have hedges on their books. That's the second one I was thinking about, and I, and I realized I got a third one too. Cash flow hedges. This is where we're forecasting, right? We're looking into the future and we're saying, we think we're going to have these exposures out there. We actually have a cash flow hedging tool that's also a fork that does forecasting as well. And as part of the forecasting, you can have every subsidiary put their forecast in there by currency. And we will again net that together. And we only do one net trade, but we give the hedges. Ooh, sorry, I didn't mean my, hit the mic. We give hedges to all of the different subsidiaries. And so even when we're doing these forecasted trades, we can actually net that take away the natural hedges and show clients how much natural hedging they've got. And it's a great tool because we actually have graphics and stuff that we can say, all right, this is what your total exposure is. This is how much of your exposure was naturally hedged. And here's how much we hedge with contracts. And we can actually show cost savings to clients based off of the natural hedges that we do. And I could go on for like, you could tell, I could go for three hours talking about this and getting into the details, but I love this stuff because you know what? There are some places, some brokerages will say, we don't want clients to know anything about natural hedges because that costs us volume. We don't feel that way. We feel like, you know what? If we can show them their natural hedges, 
And a lot of people don't hedge because they just assume they've got natural hedges. Well, but if we actually show them exactly what they are and we can show them what their unhedged position is, we can do a better job of managing their risk. And again, if we're taking care of our clients, showing them how to do it right, they're going to be loyal customers to ours. Dave, first and foremost, let me tell you that we love stories. So perfect. Thanks for oh, that. I'm a storyteller, so I, I can go on. Can hear that. Can hear that. And what I like as well in what you, what you explained here is that basically what you're breaking down is it could be seen as cannibalizing your own business, right? Because as you mentioned, as a brokerage, you want to do as much volume as possible. But as soon as you help companies net their exposure, their transactions, all of a sudden you have less business on that aspect. But I like how that leads to, at the end of the day, building huge trust with your clients because you're definitely... Yeah. I mean, it seems like you're doing what's best for them on that on that particular point. But really, we really do. We believe more in taking care of our clients and doing the right thing than just trying to get more volume out of them. That's the right thing to do. And so it's corporate treasury one one So can we just quickly define, because I mentioned this, actually, I might fall here, but you, can you quickly explain us what natural hedging is? Sure. Natural hedging is, let's take it from the standpoint of a European union company that's got their functional currency is euros. And if you have, let's say that they buy an entity in the United States and that entity in the United States is making products and they are selling their product in euros. Okay. Not through the parent, but maybe they're just selling it separately in euros. So they've got a euro receivable. They might also have a euro, euro payable back to the parent because they've got an intercompany loan, okay? So when they get those receivables in, they can just keep them in euros and send them back to pay for that intercompany loan. That's a natural hedge, and they've got that set up naturally. So the other way people do it a lot of times is, let's say that same U.S. company, let's say they're just doing business in the United States, rather than having the European entity loan them euros, they would go get a loan in U.S. dollars locally so that all the proceeds that the company gets from selling their product in U.S. dollars are going to go to pay off that U.S. dollar loan, eliminating foreign exchange exposure. So just try to find ways to match up the currency you're doing business with to what your payables and receivables are. Is that a simple enough explanation? 100% makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I like the way you've put it. Can we, can we quickly break down what's... Because I'm guessing exposure trading, foreign exchange rates, value between currencies. How has the recent inflation and interest rates rise impacted FXD related in terms of everything you can think of, cost, volatility, availability, risk? I guess this has huge impact, right, on FX trading. Can you walk us through what has been happening here and what are the consequences? Yeah, if every country moved exactly the same way at the same time, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But that's not what we have seen. We've actually seen some yield curves, what we call invert, go different directions where, you know, you might have been going along like this and then all of a sudden they've crossed lines. So currencies that used to be really inexpensive to hedge are now more expensive to hedge and vice versa. So, and let me back up a little bit and talk about that. When you're hedging in the currency markets, the underlying cost for hedging comes from the interest rate markets. So if interest rates are at 6% in one country and 3% in another country, there's a 3% difference 
in those interest rates. That's going to be the expense. Now, it's not always an expense depending on which side of the market you're on. It actually could be to your advantage if you're on the right side of the marketplace. So it really has changed a lot of the trading dynamics because if you look at you look at how some of the different currencies are trading in the world, there's some countries that have actually been, it's been advantageous to move, maybe purchasing or selling to different countries because the yield curves have changed. And so it has made things different. It cha has changed the world, probably not as dramatically as companies borrowing, but it really has is moving around where people are buying and selling products from. And as you know, in our global economy now, we're very fluid and we can get things made about anywhere and get them sent to us. But it really has made a big change in what's going on. Now, the availability, the availability of hedges. I feel like the availability has tightened up a little bit. Volatilities have gone up because we've seen a lot bigger movements in currencies. And so the market has tightened as far as the availability, the cost and the risk structure, underlying risk of putting on hedges has gone up. So, of course, we're going to have to change the availability or the, the cost of them. You know, people either have to pay more for them or there's going to be less available. It's just the law of supply and demand. And then we talk about risk. The risk factors have gone up. And when we look, I mentioned, and this is a little bit before the interest rates, but I mentioned, you know, with COVID, risk factors went through the roof because volatilities went crazy because trade changed dramatically during that time frame. So in the last two years, it's really a whole new world. And one of the things that I've noticed is there's a lot of people in Treasury that have been in Treasury maybe 10 years, which is pretty experienced person, right? Someone's been doing it for a while. Well, but since they've got into Treasury, they've never had a huge downturn in the market. There's never been a time when currency rates were extremely volatile like we've seen in the last year or two. And so all of a sudden, these people who've just assumed that, ah, you know, currencies are not that risky, there's not a lot of volatility, you don't have to do that much. All of a sudden, there's like, what happened? Because the rug was pulled out from under them. And it's a whole new world. And old codgers like myself, who've been here for 35, 37 years, I've seen this come and go many times. And so sometimes I give people advice and they just shake their head like, I don't know what this old guy's talking about. But I'm about preparing for the worst, not preparing for the best case scenario. That's super interesting, Dave. I, I like that perspective you gave that it's mainly driven by the fact that interest rates are changing differently in different countries. And that's like driving investments differently, which is like completely throwing FX into extreme volatility. Yeah, is that, that really is that what's really happening? Is that uh, you know, when you look at, for instance, the United States, obviously we've we've had interest increases regularly for the last couple of years. There's other companies that have been actually keeping their interest rates really low, and when you when that happens, if you've got a country whose interest rates are not rising and one that is rising, the disparity gets greater which means the, the cost of hedging is increasing. We look at China. China's been keeping their interest rates really quite low. And so we have actually seen the exchange rates move where the U.S. dollar has actually gained quite a bit of strength against China, which means the Chinese renminbi is weakened. Just basic economics. Um, money flows towards capital, so if towards returns. So if you can get 6% return in the United States versus a 2% return in China, 
Where do you want your money? You watch money in the United States, right? So it makes sense that the Chinese renminbi would weaken. People want money out of there into a place where they can get a higher return. That's just basic economics. And so that's one of the things that has really managed to push the currency markets around is the different speeds that countries are raising their interest rates. There's also, I mean, after COVID specifically, right, there was this trend towards a lot of companies um, moving away from this global economy towards a more localized one, right? You had Apple move some, just as one like, notable example, uh, announced that they're going to start producing iPhones in the US, etc. Do you see an overall trend towards a reduced globalization? I mean, seeing as you're like a huge facilitator in that, or is that something that you think we can't get out of? Yes, probably both. Uh, there is a trend towards reduced globalization, but there's only so many things that you can do that with, right? I can't grow tropical fruit where I am because we have snow on our mountains in the wintertime. So I can't grow oranges here. So, you know, I, if I want an orange, I've got to get it from someplace that can grow it, right? So there's there are limiting factors in, in what I can do that. And the other limiting factor is cost, obviously. I cannot build something as cheap here in the United States as I can build it in China. Quality might be better, but I can't build it as inexpensively. And frankly, the United States right now, even if we've had this runaway inflation and we have interest rates keep going up, but guess what? Our employment is not going down. We're almost at full employment. We don't have enough workforce to meet the needs of building all those things. So that's a real struggle. Now, Mexico, which is just south of us, they have a workforce that has capability and they've got people that need jobs down there. So instead of making things in China, I see people bringing it a little bit closer to home, say you're in the United States, Mexico, because transportation, shipping, the availability of things is much quicker. So doesn't necessarily mean we may not be manufacturing things overseas, but maybe a little closer to home Being in Europe, you know, maybe not China, but maybe more Eastern Europe. Um, you know, places that have capacity. Super clear. No, you're not being used to think so. You're, you're, you're the well, I'm, getting, I'm getting old enough to, you know, I'm going to retire one of these days. You know, give me another give me another 10 years and I'm done. So, you know, it's, I think that we there's still a bright future in this. Yeah, it's there's good runway still. It's a good living. So good thing to do. So tell us more about GPS and specifically, like, what differentiates you from other brokerages? So you mentioned a couple of the softwares that you have that... Um, help them. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about specifically what GPS do, what differentiates you versus other brokers sure. and, and the, the unique th benefits that you bring? Yeah. And, and let me take you in the way back machine to when we started the company, because I think that that's, that's integral into who we are and why we're here. But there's a group of us worked for a regional bank out of Salt Lake City, which is where I'm at today. And when we started working there, we really were intent on putting together things that were great for our clients. And we had a lot of really cool things we did for our clients. We were very innovative and on the cutting edge. Well, that regional bank got bought by a big bank. And one of the first things that the big bank said was, you know, all those really cool things you're doing for your clients, you're not doing them. And so basically they downgraded all of our services. And you'd think if you get a big bank with, you know, billions and billions of dollars that you're going to upgrade. Instead, we downgraded service. And that didn't sit very well with us and didn't sit very well with our clients. 
And so after about a year of that, that's when we started this company, GPS Capital Markets. And that was one of our very first goals was we do what the customer needs. The products that we have, the tools that we have are based off of our customer needs. And so we've grown with that philosophy. Now we've got tools that obviously do spot trades, forward trades, you know, window contracts and drawdowns. And we've got tools that do, you know, cash flow forecasting, cash flow hedging, batch payments where companies can send us a, a big batch file. We send thousands of payments out at one time. We've got our intercompany netting tool that I discussed. We've got our balance sheet hedging tool, which is where we go out and gather all of the information from clients and their subsidiaries about all their exposures around the world and different pieces. That's generally what we are trying to do is we're generally trying to offer the tools and the systems that clients need. So we've got treasury tools, actual treasury management tools. You know, if you need to know what your balances are in all of your different accounts around the world so you can aggregate them together and, and see them by currency. We've got that. Multi-currency accounts that allow us to go out and they can hold a digital wallet with us and have funds go in and out of that through a virtual IBAN. That we really try to be most things to most companies. Because of this, I would say that our the type of client that we have at GBS Capital Markets is different than the traditional brokerage. I think that the volume that we put through the average trade size is probably, and this is through a lot of analysis, probably three or four times larger than the average brokerage firm because we're dealing with more sophisticated companies, more true multinationals, not just an exporter, you know, building something here and exporting out, but have operations all over the world that tend to have larger transactions. And so our transaction size seems to be, tends to be larger. And we tend to deal with companies that are a little bit larger in scale. I mean, we deal with people all across the board. Don't get me wrong. You know, from the mom and pop shops up. But we tend to have a lot more larger clients than a traditional. So if, if, you, if you want somebody that can deal with the bigger guys, that's, that's who we are. Yeah. And, and I think that of all the brokers out there, we'd be right at the top of that scale. Super interesting. I saw on your website that you guys also propose like payment processing and exposure management as well. Like you really like went out from the whole, you're not just a brokerage. I mean, you call yourself a brokerage, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't have expected an FX broker to have like an intercompany netting tool. We already discussed that, right? right? Why would you cut out your own service from, yeah. <laughs> from the middle? Um, and then you guys are doing this paper. Like you guys, I guess, started there and branched out or how did that happen? Yeah, I, it, it all kind of started within the first year of the company because we had clients that needed this. We had... For, we had a client specifically come to us and they were looking for a global balance sheet hedging tool. And they told us everything they wanted. They told us the problem that the company had. Basically, they had all these exposures and they needed the net and they didn't know how to track and manage it. And they were looking for a tool and they couldn't find one that was working. They couldn't find anything that worked good for them. And so we sketched it all up on spreadsheets on you know how this would work and they're like oh yeah that's exactly what we want and so we just hired somebody to program for us and you know within a couple months we were up and running and it was like ah guess what we're kind of in a new business here so it has really been driven by client need and rather than just saying well hope you find somebody you know we've got a big dev department we've got 18 people that are doing dev for us full time and they've been here for you know we've been developing for 20 years so 
all of the tools and systems we've got there, they're ours. They're not anything, anything we bought from anybody else. They're homegrown and everything is built in house. So it's, we've got control over it. We know what's going on with it and it works well. And if, and if it doesn't work well, it's our fault. So, so as it, you say, it's client driven, right? So yes, that's based off the needs of the client. But at the same time, you also gave a really nice example of like, I guess at some stage clients come to you and say, oh, we want to hedge this thing. And can you help us buy a hedge in this market here that will help us offset our... The question was, what do you think uh, treasurers get wrong when they come to you to talk about FX risk management? What's the number one misconception that you get? I think that most treasurers feel like it needs to be an adversarial relationship and not a partnership. They feel like it's us against them. And they have a hard time really believing that we're there to help them. We want to to move forward and, and help them manage their currency better. And it, it's kind of funny because it's amazing that things that clients will hide from you <laughs> when you're first starting a relationship out because they'll like, oh, well, we got this, you know, little exposure over here that's maybe a million dollars a year. And, and as you get in and you start talking to them about that, it's like, well, yeah, we do have this hundred million over here that maybe we ought to talk about too. But I think that just historically, in this industry, there's been so many people that have not necessarily been on the client side that everybody approaches this with a high bit of skepticism. And that's what we really want to break down, that idea that we could actually do execution, but we could actually be working for the client themselves. So we really want to move that forward. The other thing is clients tend to focus on one type of hedging, not multiple types of hedging. So, for instance, in Europe, we tend to see most clients focus almost exclusively on cash flow hedging. In the United States, we see a lot more clients focus on balance sheet hedging. And one is not right, one is not wrong. Both are vital as part of that process. And let me explain that. If you have got a business and you know you sell stuff all year long and you've got forecast of sales going out in the future, that's something you should look at and you should probably hedge that, even if it's just a portion. On the converse side, if you also have given exposures, so for instance, let's say you've made an intercompany loan to one of your subsidiaries in a foreign currency. Well, you know they're going to pay that back and you know you've got that currency exposure on your book. It's not a forecast. You know it's going to come back. Maybe you don't know when it's going to come back. It might be five years before it comes back. But you still have that exposure. You want to hedge that. It's a known exposure. That's something you should hedge 100%. Those are the kind of the two disparities that we see people just locking into one view of their risk and their exposure. One of the biggest issues that we run into when when first working with a treasurer is there there really is a lot of skepticism from the side of treasury professionals when it comes to dealing with brokerages or their financial institutions because it's been set up as an adversarial relationship over the years. And that's what we are really trying to fix. We're trying to change that so that it's not an adversarial relationship. It's really a partnership. And it's amazing how many people you will get that say, well, you know, we got a little $1 million exposure and here and nothing really else. And once you get into a relationship and you've done something for them, they're like, oh, well, yeah, we got a hundred million over here that we didn't talk about. Hey, we got to talk about that. And so 
that's what we really are striving to do is make this a win-win situation where, you know, we're, we're not hiding anything from our clients. We're trying to help them identify their exposures. We're help, trying to help them reduce them as much as we can through natural hedges. But we want to make sure that we are, we're on their side. We're working for them. Super clear. So what, what's the main things that treasure when they come to work with an FX broker? need to come, like, always keep in mind. So one thing is be transparent, right, and try to establish trust. Anything else that treasurer should always go into the mindset with? Well, I would guess that historically the way that a lot of different brokers have sold is just on price. And that's all they do is, you know, I could save you five pips on this here and there. Well, you know, that's that's all well and good, but price is not everything. The big difference between price and service, like, for instance, if, okay, so you, you save five pips, but now you're not taking advantages of your natural hedges and you're hedging a hundred million instead of 50 million. Well, what did five pips do for you? It did not, did nothing for you because you're paying spread on twice as big a volume. So you, you need to actually look at the whole picture. It's not just about price. It's about value. And if you can go in and, and save somebody, think of the example I gave earlier. A company that had 200 million in FX that they were executing every month, and you move that down to seven or eight million a month. I don't care how many pips you can save somebody; you're not going to save them nearly the money they are if you can show them how to cut that out of the body, out of the marketplace, right? So it is you've got to look at things holistically, and you've got to look at the big picture and not just look at it short sight. That's interesting. That's the part that you you touched on because I would have assumed, again, having not done it, right, that if I'm working with a broker that's managing all my FX transactions, it's transparency in the transactions themselves that I would be most like interested in. Is that just a granted in the industry or is that? I think the that deals? that has been driven in the industry by people that don't have anything else to sell. When all you have to sell is price, I mean, of course you're going to sell that. That's all you got. But if you've got more services, you've got more to offer then that's not where you start. And I think a lot of the brokerages have specifically, you know, the younger people that don't have a lot of experience, that's all they know. And so that tends to be what they sell. You sell what you know, right? And I'm selling knowledge. That's what I'm selling. On the gray hair. I think I forget. Well, what's left of it? You know, there's not much of it left. But, you know, the, <laughs> see, that's why I've got this snow background here. So it, it looks like I've got big hair. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't notice. Kind of the same color, right? Blends so, the end. Could you give a, a, another story to us, Dave? I know you love your stories, and, and we love hearing them about like a unique solution that GPS offered its its clients in that vein. Not just looking at the FX, but something unique that they provided on top. Let me think about something here. We had a client come to us a while back, and the problem that they had is they were not making as much money as they thought they should. And they couldn't figure out why. So they had, they looked at their consolidations. They looked at how much they sold their product for and how much their markup was. And they just couldn't figure out why their net revenues were significantly lower than what they should be. And what they found was, and well, what we found for them was they were selling all of their product. So it's the U.S. company, okay? So the U.S. company, they were selling their product to their subsidiaries. And 
So I'm just going to use the UK subsidiary as an example because this is where the biggest loss was coming. So they were selling their product to the UK subsidiary in US dollars, right? All right. So at the parent level, did they have any currency exposure? No, because they were getting paid back in US dollars, right? But the UK entity had significant exposure because their cost of goods was based in US dollars. Well, what was happening was they were buying product from the the US parent in dollars, then selling it in pounds and in euros because they were that's where they sold was in pounds and euros. And they had 90-day terms with the parent company. They were doing no hedging and they had very thin margins. So by the time that they sold the product, collected the funds and were able to exchange the funds and get them back to the parent, more often than not, they were losing money on the product. And the parent hadn't given the subsidiary any ability to hedge. So they couldn't even do any hedging over there. They didn't have the authority to hedge. So there was all these FX gains and losses, which were actual profit that the company was losing or was happening at that subsidiary level. Once they consolidated the financials, it just come through as cost of goods sold, right? It wasn't showing up as a foreign exchange gain or loss. This was just showing up in their cost of goods sold. And they couldn't figure out why the cost of goods sold were out of control. Well, it's because they weren't doing any hedging of that payable back to the parent. And the parent just looked at it as, well, that's part of doing business with our subsidiaries. So once we were able to identify that, break that out, and then start hedging that intercompany payable back to the parent, all of a sudden their, their net revenues popped right back to where they expected them to be. And this was was not really complicated. It was kind of simple. But from an accounting, if when the accountants looked at it, there was no problems with it from an accounting standpoint, right? The accounting was being done right. And when they looked at it from a logical financial analysis standpoint, everything looked right. We're selling it for this and it's we've got this markup, but why are we not making that markup? And so that company was really excited because they're like, we never even thought about that one piece because it never seemed to be a real issue because they'd been doing this for a bunch of years and, and the currencies hadn't been very volatile. But all of a sudden we get some, introduce some more volatility into it. All of a sudden it's costing them real money. So that's the kind of thing that I just, I love to find. I love to find those kind of things for companies. And it's simple, but you know what? It's not easy to see. When you look at how accounting systems are set up, there's zero visibility there because the accounting systems automatically do that consolidation for you. And if they do the consolidation for you, you can't see where that FX gain and loss is happening. Does that make sense? Until, yeah, but they, they had an idea that it was somewhere in the FX. I mean, that's why they came to you, I guess, right? Yeah. Well, frankly, this was... This was kind of like an offhand comment that they made. They're like, we're so frustrated with doing business in the UK because we think we should be making a lot of money over there. We're not. We don't know what's going on. And I offered to go in and I says, can I go in and do like a, I'll go in and do like an audit for you, a free audit. I will go in, dig through the numbers, look through and see if I can find out what's going on. I've been doing this for over 35 years. So even if it's not foreign exchange related, I know enough about accounting and treasury that I can usually help somebody figure something out, right? And so I just offered to go in and do this for them. And they're like, okay. And I I was there for about a half a day before we finally dialed in. 
on what was going on and started identifying this just through asking simple questions, getting the people in London on the phone, getting the people here on the phone. And once we identified it, they're like, geez, that was simple. And it's an easy thing to edge because if you sell a million dollars worth of product to somebody in the UK in dollars, you know, you can put a hedge on for a million dollars against the pounds immediately and and lock that in 100%. And you know when you're going to pay it back. It's it's an, the easiest hedge to do because you you know how much it is, you know when it's due, it's intercompany, it's it's a no-brainer. And all of a sudden it just solved all their problems. Very cool. So again, I, I said this earlier as well, you talk less like a broker. You talk more like a consultant that comes in to solve FX problems. Yeah. I don't hear the whole, I, you have a little bit of the spreads and the this and yeah. the edge of that yeah. and everything, but it's more like there's a problem, we need to find the best solution to it and dig down to the root cause of it, not just surface yeah. level, try and find some derivatives that are going to offset the problem, but actually dig down into the root source of what the problem is. Try sure. right to tackle it there. If not that, find us. Is that, is that the right way to put it? Yeah, absolutely is the right way to put it. And we try to do that across the company. I believe we spend more time training our employees than anybody does. And we train them in deep concepts. So for instance, I'm in the process of going around to all of our clients, all of our offices globally. I've already been over to our UK office. I spent one solid week there training them specifically on accounting, uh, accounting for foreign exchange, how to identify exposures, how to manage those exposures, just so that we had, and then, wow, I'll tell you what, you know how many sales guys want to sit in an eight hour a day training for five days rather than going out and doing their job? No, they don't. But they, when they come out of this, they say, oh my gosh, we didn't understand what kind of exposure. I was doing this training up in Canada and one of my guys has been doing foreign exchange for 25 years. He's like, I thought I knew everything. And now I realize I only knew a third of what's going on because there's so much more going on in the background from the accounting. It's not just treasury, it's the accounting as well. And if you can understand the whole process and help your clients understand that whole process, that there's more people that need to be involved in this, it just makes it better. So yeah, we want to be consultants. We want to be very consultative. And I, I would tell you that we've got the best, best people in the world because we put the time and effort into training them. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's we'll have to get you back on. That's my pitch. That's my sales pitch right there. So I'm not. We'll I don't back on want to be sales pitchy, but I, you know, I like to talk about concepts. But you know, I, I'm a firm believer that we've got great people. Mm-hmm. Probably because I do the training. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> not <that> you're biased. <laughs> yeah, I'm completely hundred percent biased. I mean, you know. I'm, I'm willing to admit I'm biased on that, but you know, I, it's my firm belief. So, no, we got a flavor of that today as well, Dave. So, thank yeah. you so much for taking us through all of that and explaining the role that brokers have um, in FX risk management. Let's pick your brain as someone that's been in the industry for a very long time. As a topic, we've been sort of talking about more and more on the podcast overall, and also on LinkedIn and on and on newsletters as well. You've already highlighted the importance of technology specifically the softwares that you've built, the dev team that you have, you said is 18 people strong. And so you, you as a company put a very strong emphasis on technology. The last two years, we've seen a huge boom in a very big technology, which is AI. And in the fast paced world of FX, where volatility is, is all of a sudden, I'm assuming it's a really 
big topic that's going to revolutionize the industry. What's your take on the role that AI is going to have on FX risk exposure management? Well, I'm a big fan of AI. In fact, I use you know, chat GTP all the time and helping me write things, you know, because it is really good at putting structured sentences and paragraphs around specific topics. Love it. We also have got one of our traders on our desk who used to work for an AI company in military intelligence. I know. And, uh, you know, like the real cutting edge of this. And he had put together an AI trading program for FX. Before everybody gets excited, what we found out is it's just about as good as anything else in the marketplace. I think when we talk about AI, a lot of people think like, I'm going to have this do all these trades for me and I'm going to beat the market and I'm going to make all this cash. I don't think that that's where AI is going in foreign exchange. I don't think that that's going to change the world. Where I do think it has been really changing is it when it has been like reading invoices and and putting those into invoice capture systems so it's easier to process the payments and the actual business of foreign exchange. It is that end of the world that I think it has been really, really valuable in. And from a, I've talked to you about a lot of our systems, a lot of our tools, and a lot of the technology we've got. It is being very helpful in being able to program those kind of things faster. It's been very helpful in being able to to basically make some of the work processes and the workflows that we do in those systems faster. So yeah, I think it is is really going to speed up the world that we're in and the way that we deal with things. But I don't think that being able to go out and trade FX and make a fortune, become a trillionaire is here yet. So I, I love AI, it's, but I think that we just need to make sure that we understand where it's going and what it's going to be be used. You made us. So you have, you have different opinions of me from me on that, Hassan, but that's my gut feeling. No, I think that's definitely the first place it's going to come. I, I, I think 100%. So we have a newsletter, a weekly newsletter called uh, AI and Treasury, basically, uh, where, we, where we find different applications for AI that's going on in Treasury either already happening or just explaining concepts of AI to treasurers and whatnot. And honestly, a lot of the tools that we review and, and then write about um, are indeed capturing more the, let's say, mundane, repetitive side of a lot of the tasks treasurers are doing, which perhaps just couldn't be just or a little bit off of being automated by a simple algorithm or a simple line of code. And maybe do need a little bit more of like reading and understanding to then be able to assist in, in the more thought processes. Um, right. I, now, what is the future world? I don't know. But right. I mean, even like we have today, I think I completely agree. Yeah. With even like, like our expense management tool, you know, I've got a, a camera on my phone here, right? And when I charge something for work, I just take a picture of it. And I would say that 99% of the time, it scans the invoice, gets the right amount on there, and automatically uploads it into my expense management system, right? So, I mean, that's AI. I mean, that's what it's doing and because it's it's identifying things. And it is those type of tasks, rather than me taking a photocopy and digitally uploading it and manually putting in all things, it's saving me time. And I get that. And I think that that's really where it's hitting the cutting edge. And that's one place that I'm trying to go to is, is I'm trying to get better at helping my clients manage that 
you know, that payable receivable process and how can we make it so that it's more automated so that it, my payable, your receivable check one another and they, they are matching so that we can agree to pay. That's a big deal because it's really time consuming work. That's the kind of thing where you've got tons of clerks manually keying things in, a lot of room for error. And it's, it's going to make that life a lot better. Super interesting. Dave, to wrap up, you've taken us through what FX risk exposure is, where it comes from, how it typically can be seen from a different light inside those problems, and also what GPS does and, and the services you offer. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed that maybe you want to touch on on those topics? Oh, there's probably a million things, and we probably should have another session sometime, but I am very passionate about this stuff. And uh, and I could literally speak for days. And as my guys all around the world can attest to, you know, if I go over and teach them for eight hours a day for five days, they, they get sick and tired of listening to my voice. But this is such a fun topic. And and it's I'm so passionate about it that I just love that you've had me on because it it really makes me happy to talk about these things. You can probably tell I, I get really I'm not I'm not the world's most passionate person about a lot of things, but this is something I really get excited about. And I know it's financial, geeky, accounting, treasury stuff, but I get real passionate about it. I love it. That's what we're all about here. Definitely you're gonna have to come awesome. Come on again and give us some world class training on accounting for FX and, and whatnot. That that was the kind of topics we love on the show. So definitely yeah. I'd love to have you back on. Well, you know, I'm gonna be in world. Europe next month. Maybe we can get together when I'm over then. Face to face. Yeah. Be great. It'd be great. Yeah. Awesome. Where can people go to find out more about you, GPS? Where should they go? You can go to our website. It is gpsfx.com. Um, like, you know, the GPS like is in the GPS systems and then FX foreign exchange. So gpsfx.com. You can go there, find more information about us. You can reach out to me directly if you want. I'm on LinkedIn, David J. Pierce. Or you can send me an email, dpierce at gpsfx.com. Happy to answer questions, and I'm kind of the guy that loves to chat with people. So if you want somebody that you need to just you know bounce ideas off of, you know, call me because I, like I say, I geek out on that kind of stuff. And if it's not me, I'll get you the right person. I've got people having done this for so long. I've got people all over the world I know in in all kinds of niche industries. And if I don't know it, I can usually get you to the right person. So and I'm not those scared all of the like, so yeah, reach out. Great. All that's in the show notes below as well for everyone. Dave, thank you so much for being on the show. And with him, Alex Youngwan, who is the Vice President of Sales and Trading European Markets at GPS Capital Markets. He has extensive experience in FX management and offers us a view on the UK and European markets. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We had an amazing conversation with David Pierce, uh, your US counterpart, and we we're interested in getting insights about the European markets. So maybe we could start by talking about how do you, uh, Alex, GPS capital markets within Europe and treasurers perceive uh, FX brokerage in Europe versus what we could see or feel in the US, for instance? Yeah, it's always been an interesting one for me. I feel that there is a variation between the UK and Europe, first of all. Uh, I think the UK is uh, is much more advanced from a brokerage perspective. Europe is probably, in my experience now, 10 years behind. I think the last five, six years have really been the push for brokerages. I think I started operating in the Dutch market eight years ago, and there has been a significant change over those eight years. 
I think if we compare that to the States, uh, the States is almost more in its infancy uh, when it comes to the knowledge around brokerages and what we can actually offer. Awesome. Super clear. How do you, how do you explain this 10 years gap and how does it, how do you see it in terms of what's happening on the market? Like, where does it come from? The 10-year gap, I think, is relatively easy. Brokerages started in the UK, must have been 20 years ago. I remember when I started, a counterparty, uh, not GBS, they were well-versed, big client base, well-established as a business, but we didn't have any European presence. I was the first one to be contacting Holland in this case. And at that point, businesses hadn't heard of brokerages. So I know in Holland, because I worked for a bank previously, the concept in Holland is very much everything under one roof. Whereas in the UK, companies had already got used to the idea that brokerages are out there, they could get better service, they could get better uh, rates on their FX. So it already already been established. I think that's really telling when you look at it from a, a cold calling perspective. I know it's always the uh, painful topic, but if you look at cold calling in the UK versus Europe, I think CFOs, FDs are probably fed up with it. I, I wish they get hammered day in, day out, whereas... My understanding is from clients and prospects that I speak to in, in Europe, in Netherlands, in Belgium, it is becoming more frequent, but you might think four or five times a week, perhaps a month, rather than four or five times a day. So I think that's really what shows. And I'm sure that will change over time because as the market has evolved, as brokerages realize that there is opportunity out in Europe, we will see more and more move. And we have seen that over the last five years there. Brexit has obviously uh, facilitated this move and every company has had to create uh, an EU hub and it's just been where have these companies gone and yeah, what markets can they target as a result? That's interesting. So that gap that you see between the UK, the EU and the US, could you elaborate more on like how on the corporate side, they also react differently to brokers? So I'm talking, how does a treasurer in most of these yeah. companies or CFO, if they're a bit smaller, uh, interact with brokerages in the UK, perhaps differently to the US. Yeah, I, I think when you look at it from a small to medium sized businesses and then to the, the big corporate companies, businesses that were doing anything up to kind of 20, 30 million in FX weren't getting the service from, from the banks. That had really changed over time. And there are what, 40 odd thousand clients and the banks simply couldn't give them the services that they looked at required. So that was an immediate win for brokerages. And that's where it, that's where the market initially established itself. And I think that started really from a base element of just day-to-day -day trading, your spot, your forward, and perhaps option contracts, depending on the brokerage. I think when you now look at it today for a corporate uh, treasury perspective, it's all becoming it out around the tools. It was never so much about, okay, what can I do as a trading position, but what am I getting as an add-on service? What consultancy advice am I getting? What information can that brokerage leverage utilize to help me in that position i think that's where gps has always been very very successful because we have these tools which i'm sure dave is taking me through in depth as well it is those tools that have been the the add-on which has really helped us in the treasury space because it goes one step further than just your your day-to-day -day trading which they do and most trip corporate treasurers will be dealing with three or four banks at least so they have that functionality what they don't have is the the insight, the knowledge, the information that we're able to provide from a more data perspective, translational uh, concept. So that's really where I think it has helped on the European market. That's really where we see that advantage versus perhaps other brokerages that don't offer that, yeah, those, those add-on tools. 
And are you offering the same services in the US versus the EU uh, versus this part of the world? Yeah, we do. From a business perspective, everything we have is sold across the board. Uh, we sell them in all countries. We definitely see a difference in markets as to what products are more interesting. How so? Given the, say again. How so? Like what's, what's the differences that you see? What are people? Yeah, if I look at it from an, uh, from a U.S. perspective, they're, they're very advanced in the, in the, in the cash tools, the treasury tools that they have had to offer. We're our, the American market has been running what 20, 21 years. The European market for us is perhaps five years running now. So we're still finding our feet when it comes to those treasury tools, but it is those treasury tools that are opening up those discussions. And they're the ones that are getting us into, in the door with these corporate treasurers. And we're slowly starting to see that portfolio grow. But what we see more, for instance, on the UK side, it's still very much a hedging situation. What can we offer businesses from a hedging perspective? Because they probably aren't getting the credit lines that they need from their banks. And I think that's something I do see as a variation between the UK and Europe. It seems that the UK banks are a little bit more tougher, stricter on their credit facilities for companies to hedge versus what my experience have been in the European banks. They've taken the fight on with the, the brokerages. They want to offer those products. It's more challenging is one thing I definitely see, but there is still a major space for GPS and what we offer. That's super interesting. Do you think it's like, again, if I, so if we draw the split between the US and let's say UK and Europe, there's more currencies on this side of the pond, right? So yeah. naturally there'll be a more of a affiliation towards understanding that we need to hedge. You've got the obvious UK Euro pairing, which a lot of business, sorry, the, you've got the obvious GBP versus uh, Euro pairing, which yeah. those two economies are intrinsically very, very linked. And a lot of commerce happens across UK exports, a lot of financial services to Europe. So do you think that there's just more of a understanding of the need on this side of the pond, like yeah. just because of the historical context? 